This is Canada Reads American Style, featuring two friends who love Canada Reads and Canadian literature. Welcome our host Rebecca from Michigan and Tara from Ontario. Hi everyone, it's Rebecca, and today I am chatting with professional explorer and best-selling author Adam Schultz. Adam is a geographer and historian and holds a PhD from McMaster University. He has participated in numerous archaeological digs and undertakes solo expeditions in the most remote wilderness areas. He is the Westaway Explorer in Residence of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. He has written five books to date, and I will list them all in the show notes. But today we will be discussing his fifth and latest book, Where the Falcon Flies. Uh, Welcome, Adam. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me back on the podcast. Oh, yeah. You know, the last time you and I chatted, I think I actually had read two of your books right at that point and asked you a lot of questions about both books. Uh, And I'm just so thrilled to have you back again because I absolutely love your work, the adventures that you do and how you write about them. Just absolutely the best nonfiction ever. Well, thank you. That's high praise. Sure. Okay. So we're going to go ahead and get started with this one uh, about where the falcon flies. Can you just tell us briefly how this journey came to be? Right. All my books tend to be based on my adventures or expeditions, and this one was no different. I was in my living room in southern Ontario, right near Lake Erie, and uh, we had just moved there from the north. And living in southern Ontario, that's as far south as you can get and still be in Canada. Uh, And I was longing for the Arctic and missing the wilderness of the north. But looking out my living room window, I happened to spot a peregrine falcon. And if you've ever seen a peregrine falcon, you're not likely to forget it. They're one of the most majestic birds in the world. Now, where we live on Lake Erie is kind of like a major birding hotspot in Canada. So seeing a falcon is not that uncommon in this neck of the woods. In fact, you can see over 100 different species of Arctic birds every spring there. Uh, They spend their winters around Lake Erie or even further south, and then in the spring, they come north again. So in that moment, uh, looking out my living room window, it was like I had an epiphany. A light bulb went on over my head, and I thought in that moment, there's a part of the Arctic, even right here in my own backyard in my neighborhood, in the form of those Arctic birds that migrate. And I thought, ah, isn't that beautiful how interconnected it all really is? Why not get my canoe and my backpack and follow that falcon from our front porch to the Arctic? It's only you know, 3,000 plus kilometers. So that was the idea uh, that became the basis for the book. I love, I never actually really thought about it that way because I, even though I have never been to the Arctic, I'm always drawn to it. Books and and writers and people who live up there, I'm just fascinated by it. But it never sort of dawned on me about how many of those birds we would see here. I'm in Michigan, so we would see them here too, I'm sure. And that they head up to the Arctic when when the time is right. So I love Yeah, that. absolutely. In Michigan, you could see all of these same Arctic species. And it, it's true. I don't think very many people in the South, whether in the northern U.S. or southern Canada, think of Arctic wildlife as being on their doorsteps or in their neighborhoods. But they are. I mean, the majority of animals in the Arctic are, in fact, birds. There's a tremendous diversity of bird life during the Arctic summer. Uh, But the vast majority of those Arctic birds, probably around 96, 97%, can't overwinter in the Arctic, so they all come south. And that to me is just fascinating that you can have these Arctic animals in the form of birds uh, in much more southern locations and exploring the connections between north and south and all those habitats was something that deeply appealed to me. Yeah. Oh, I'm I'm going to, because I do a little bit of birding, but I'm 
going to make that a real strong focus of my birding in this new year uh, for sure, because God, I just had never connected the dots on that. So that's amazing. I'm really curious about what your research and trip preparation look like in determining routes and the supplies that you'll need. Because in this book, you had a very fascinating thing about supplies overall. Yes. Well, I tried to keep things as basic as possible. This expedition was more off the cuff than a lot of my other ones. Um, So I didn't really go too deep into figuring out, you know, where am I going to camp? How am I going to get resupplied compared to the other ones? When you're operating in the Arctic, such as when I did my 4,000 kilometer canoe journey alone across the Arctic, I had to do quite a lot of homework and research beforehand in terms of well, how would I get an airdrop from like a bush pilot? Could he leave a barrel or something in, you know, at this location, this latitude, this longitude, and then hopefully I could get to it before a wolverine and a bear. But this one, I was like, well, I'll be traveling from Southern Ontario to the North. I want to keep the budget as basic as possible. So I thought I'll pack as much food as I can fit into my canoe. I'll fish along the way, pick up some roots and berries. Maybe I can pick up food here or there. And then I had my wife, Alexandria, Uh, Before I left home, I entrusted some boxes with her. And these boxes, I said, can you mail these to certain post offices uh, along my route? Because I thought, well, I'll look at where some post offices right by the St. Lawrence River where I'll be paddling. And then uh, in Canada, we have Canada Post, which is kind of like the U.S. Postal Service. And they will actually hold a a box at a post office for you for up to a month if you sign up for free. Um, to this little program they have. So she did that for me. And then I had a couple of post offices along my route because the journey was going to take me anywhere from three to four months uh, where I could walk into the post office, open up my box, and then inside of it would be like fresh socks as well as some boxers and granola bars and nuts and a few freeze-dried meals. So I did that twice as well. And then two questions. One, I'm curious about... Even researching now, as you said, your other, you know, explorations were more complex than this, perhaps. But when you're doing, when you're determining your, the routes you'll take, are you, you have to sort of live in the moment too, right? Because you may not be able to, on paper, determine exactly how you need to, or how you'll get somewhere, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, on any sort of long canoe journey that involves thousands of miles of paddling under your own power, Uh, You're at the mercy of Mother Nature, the elements. There can be storms, tornadoes, gale force winds, uh, huge waves on the Great Lakes. So it's very difficult to forecast in advance uh, where you will be on a given day. I mean, you have your daily estimates that you hope to accomplish. But what happens if you start off like I did in April and the first two days are, you know, crystal clear skies and the lake is smooth as glass? Then it would be a shame not to take advantage of that. So I'm going to paddle as long as I possibly can, if the lake is smooth, even by the moonlight, um, if need be. And then they'll be, you know, way ahead of what you might have forecast. So your entire route is already thrown off on the first few days. So to me, I just took that as all part of the adventure, not knowing where I would sleep each night, not knowing where I would camp, where I would end up. I never knew. It could be anywhere from under a bridge to in some local forest or in an orchard or a cemetery. I mean, you never really know where you're going to end up at night. And traveling through the Great Lakes, I mean, a lot of it is urban landscapes or rural landscapes. It's not pure wilderness like what I'm normally used to. Um, but I all took I took that all in stride as part of the adventure, not knowing where I would end up each night. I just tried to push on as long as I could, uh, paddling or, or traveling, and camp wherever looked suitable. 
Yeah. And then when you stop, uh, when you actually are, because I know you are really big on the granola bar thing, because you eat a lot of granola bars. But when you are cooking fish or something, do you ever have animals approach you? Like, I always wonder when you're out there, possibly bears or other animals would be attracted to that scent. So does that, is that ever a worry at all? Oh, yes. Especially in the far north. Um, if you cook up like a seven pound brook trout, like I did on this journey, uh, the scent from that is going to attract any bear for miles around. You've made a perfect magnet coming to you. And when you're alone, like I am, uh, bears are even more likely to be curious and approach you as opposed to traveling in a group of people uh, where a bear might be a little more cautious about approaching. Uh, so for that reason, I was reluctant. Didn't want to, you know, have fish every day because when you catch a fish in a canoe, the other thing is it flops around. So its scent is now all over your canoe, um, your clothing and everything else. And if you're just doing a short trip, well, no big deal. You go home and you wash your clothes. But of course, for me, that's not an option. And the scent is probably going to linger on me for days. And even our, our human noses are not that powerful. You might think there's no scent that you've washed it off or the smoke has concealed it. But of course, bears... Um, their sense of smell is so much stronger than ours. So they can detect that not only from miles away, but when it's even very faint, they can smell it. So I knew, yes, cooking fish is probably going to attract bears towards me. But I mean, I've had plenty of experience with bears. Um, I've spent many hundreds of nights sleeping alone around bears, polar bears, black bears, grizzly bears. And in my experience, the majority of bears are relatively skittish. And if you make noise, and make yourself look big, most of them will run away. So I just sort of counted on that and didn't worry too much about it. At the end of the day, you have to eat. So um, it's it's a choice that, you know, it's like I can't go without food, so I have to cook the fish. I, but that does make sense, though, because I kept thinking you were really eating all those granola bars, and I kept thinking, you know, that's got to be one of the hardest parts of the trip is just to be eating granola bars all day. I don't know. I mean, I know you need them for protein and all that, but yeah. Well, it's something that I think if you've like people who hike the Appalachian trail or the uh, Pacific coast trail, they can relate to that because the reality is you burn so many calories um, doing these thousand, you know, thousands of miles of trekking or paddling um, that your, your dietary um, needs and even your, your taste buds change quite a bit than when you're in civilization I mean, when you burn that many calories, you don't even really think of what you're eating. Everything tastes good when you're that hungry. So that does that's not really an issue, I wouldn't say. I mean, of course, it feels nice to finish a journey after four months and eat a pizza. But yeah, you just, you're, all, you're constantly hungry on one of these long journeys. So uh, granola bars, and you, most of the time, it's not even really granola bars. It's like specialty power bars or energy mm-hmm. bars. So they're loaded with calories a lot of chocolate and peanut butter and your body's craving that kind of energy, especially when it's cold and in Northern Canada, it's cold even in July and August, a lot of the time in, in wet because you're in a boat, you're in a canoe paddling rapids and things. So yeah, you're just, your body is so hungry. Um, it doesn't even really matter. It's just fuel. You put it in without even thinking about it and yeah. devour that stuff. Now I do try to get the biggest variety of, of power bars and granola bars on the market so that I don't have to eat the same brand over and over again. And I'll look at the ingredients and try to find the ones that are less processed, a little healthier. Mm-hmm. Alara bars are famous for not really having any of those additives, just having natural ingredients anyone can pronounce. So I buy a lot of those Lara bars for that reason, um, which are definitely healthier, but they still have quite a lot of calories in them and other bars as well. So I get like a big variety. 
um, especially if it's going to be a long journey of three to four months duration. And then I'll supplement that with like dried berries, like goji berries have a lot of calories. So I, I'll put dried berries in my rations as well. Uh, some almonds and cashews, like nuts that are, almonds are very, very healthy. So I like to add that to my, my diet or my daily ration. And then for like really hard days where you're feeling the hunger, or maybe you just spent 10 hours in soaking wet, bushwhacking in a place with no trails in the subarctic, I'll have like a little bit of dried mango which to me is my one sort of reward or treat. Those very difficult days where you might feel a little demoralized and you need a little something extra. So that's the kind of rations I'll pack. But even doing that, I know I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to be hungry. I, you know, one of the things I love reading your book is whenever you talk about, you find certain berries along the way, wild berries, and, and what a treat and what just a, how excited you are when you see those. I love that part of, this, of your stories as well. Oh, yes. I mean, that's like gems. I always say finding some Arctic blueberries or cloudberries or lingonberries, these Arctic berries. It's just like a burst of flavor in your mouth. And it just makes you so happy to be alive. And you're like, ah, you know, the simple pleasures in life is what it's all about. Finding a great patch of Arctic berries, something like that puts a smile on your face every time. So I get excited for those sorts of things for sure. Yeah. Now, this book is different in that you encountered quite a few people on this journey. And first of all, I was curious, did anybody recognize you? Because I sort of feel like everyone in Canada by now should recognize a solo person in a canoe, you know, you know, by how you look. I mean, I feel like everybody should recognize you. But and then I want to ask also, since most of your explorations have been solo and remote, can you talk about the impact of having more human interaction on this journey? Yeah, sure. So I guess in terms of uh, did people recognize me? Uh, not really. No, uh, mm-hmm. I mean I'm I may be one of the best known uh, outdoor writers in Canada, but <laughs> that's not exactly is the same as being like Britney Spears. So the vast majority of people <laughs> still don't know who I am, and they wouldn't recognize me. I think in the entire on the entire journey, there was only one random stranger who saw me in my canoe and said, "You're Adam Schultz." Like I'm a big fan of your books. And that was in Toronto. And I was totally shocked. Like I didn't, I never really expect anyone to know who I am. Um, but he was an avid canoeist and he, he recognized me on the beach in Toronto, but no one else did out of like hundreds of other people around, or if they did, they didn't say anything. Um, that was it. Now I do know after the fact that at least a couple other people spotted me from a distance paddling on Lake Ontario or elsewhere. And they put two and two together and figured out, oh, red canoe, one guy out on the lake early in the year, no one else in boats. <laughs> that must be Adam Schultz. I didn't know that at the time, but you know, when I got home, I saw like, oh, a message on Instagram or an email through my website saying, I saw you on you know May 8th off Port Hope. I have a cottage right there. Or my house is right there. And wow. I took this photo of you from our backyard and it's like a you see a little speck on the horizon and that's <laughs> me and my canoe. Um, so if you added those people into the tally, then maybe a handful of people might've recognized me throughout this journey. But on the other hand, I paddled through some of the busy, busiest and biggest cities in Canada, like Toronto and Montreal, where literally thousands of people saw me and the vast majority of them, especially in big cities like that. Um, they had no clue who I was, or of course they had no idea either that I was on some long journey to the Arctic. They yeah. probably just thought I'm some crazy person paddling a canoe around the lakeshore. So yeah, the vast majority of people know, but a few people, yes. And I, I'm, I talk to many people along the way, but I always try to keep a low profile. So I usually don't tell them 
that I'm an author or anything like that. I just say, my name is Adam. I'm out paddling. And I normally wouldn't even tell them I was going to the Arctic unless they specifically asked me because if they're paying attention, they could sometimes see like this guy doesn't look like he's out for a Sunday afternoon. He's got a lot of (laughs) gear stashed in that boat. You know, why does he have all this gear? And especially as the journey went on and I was getting into Northern Quebec, well, by that point, I haven't showered in a month and a half, two months. So they can see that I look a little ragged and thin and they can probably figure out he's not out here just for a weekend. (laughs) Where did this guy come from? And then in those cases, I would tell them I left like two months ago on Lake Erie and I'm heading for the Arctic. And then their eyes would kind of pop out of their head and they'd think I was crazy until I kind of explained to them what the plan was and Sometimes they'd be like, oh, what can I do to help you? And every single person I met in Canada, at least, was super nice and wanted to help me in any way they could from giving me permission. Like, oh, well, you know, I live right here. If you want to camp here, this is my land and you'd be welcome to camp on my field or in my farm. Or uh, do you need somewhere to fill up your water bottle? You know, there's a tap over here on the side of my house. Fill it up here. Or can I give you a hand with your canoe and help you carry it around that barbed wire fence? Like people were always trying to help me. Uh, even when they didn't know my name or anything, they were always super nice. I mean, that to me was the most rewarding aspect of my journey, even more so than searching for falcons. Yeah, I think that's what really struck me is how much different that is than your other books. Because again, it's very you're very remote and solo. And here you had so much more interaction with people up to a certain point. But I have to laugh because every time you would get down really low in your rations, I was really, I mean, I'm personally worried for you, right? I mean, I know you're going to be okay because you wrote the book, you came home, it's all good, but I was still kind of worried about it. And then I swear you would just have this serendipity of somebody reaching out in a way that was just so amazing and perhaps not surprising because in the U.S. we always think all Canadians are just so generous and nice. And so maybe it's not a big surprise to you, but I just thought it was amazing how just at the right moment somebody would come along and, and give some help. Yes. I mean, I was very fortunate that uh, everyone I crossed paths with, without exception, I can say in all honesty, from Lake Erie to the Arctic, from the smallest towns to the biggest city, every single person I crossed paths with showed me nothing but kindness and willingness to help. And that might be giving me half a sandwich or a yogurt, or some people gave me food here and there. And when you're half famished, I mean, that feels like winning the lottery. So that was something I was uh, very grateful for. And appreciative of. But I mean, as a Canadian, my limited experiences with Americans have been that Americans are actually all very nice. Uh, <laughs> all the Americans I've met have been anyways, and I have some American friends. And I know sometimes the stereotype of Americans is a bit different than the stereotype of Canadians. Yeah. Uh, some people picture Americans that they're all gunslingers and cowboys and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but I would, I actually have a vague idea of at some point doing a canoe journey through the U.S., um, at some point down the road. And I guess we'll test that theory, but I'm like to be optimistic that I think everyone will be nice to me. Um, but I don't know. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it, I suppose. Well, if you ever do a journey somewhere in the U S if I have any clue where you might be, I want to see you on the water. I'd love to be one of those people to get a pinpointed picture from a distance of you on the water. That would just be like a highlight for me. That'd be so cool. Now, what was the most harrowing part of this particular voyage or was there anything that really kind of gave you great pause oh there were numerous uh, life-threatening moments lots of white knuckle moments um too many and in fact i would always tell myself you know oh that's it i'm not 
I'm not rolling the dice with my life anymore. I feel like a cat that's used up eight of his nine lives. But the thing about one of these long adventures is like you, you get through a white knuckle moment in your canoe going through pounding whitewater rapids or uh, battling a huge storm far from land. And when it's over and you get back to safety, you think I'm never doing that again. And then 40 minutes later, you're right back out into the maelstrom. But I mean, the most dangerous, there were some tense moments on the Great Lakes, on Lake Erie and Lake Ontario and big storms, but also the commercial shipping traffic. When you have huge ships like the Edmund Fitzgerald bearing down on you, they can't see you in a canoe at all. You're in their blind spot. Um, So I'd have to paddle like as hard as I could. I feel like my lungs were going to burst some of the time trying to get out of a shipping lane. There were also hydro dams, which is another human object um, that you don't normally associate with wilderness journeys. And getting around hydro dams could be a challenge. Uh, there were bear encounters. I mean, lots of bears up in Labrador, northern Canada, always around me, bears. And then whitewater rapids. Many of those northern rivers, even in July, the water temperature is freezing cold. So if you fall in, there's not a lot of margin for error you're going to get hypothermia pretty quickly and uh, some of those northern rivers i was taking towards the arctic i'd never seen so many rapids in my life some of the rapids on there might go on for three four miles or even longer of continuous white water and that is like just rock after rock and wave after wave and you can run a hundred sets of rapids flawlessly but it doesn't matter one mistake is all it takes and if you just are off by an inch in terms of your paddling it takes very precise maneuvers. Um, that can be the difference between success and a disaster very quickly. So if the rivers were too rough, I would portage or, or try to walk through the, the side, um, wading through frigid water, which was a little bit difficult, but use a rope or whatever I could to navigate my canoe down the side or try to get around some rapids or bushwhack on foot in a place with no trails or paths. Um, anything I could do to minimize the risk and avoid the most dangerous sections of water, I would do it even if I knew it means traveling slower and taking another day to get through this section. That's what I would do because of course, when you're traveling alone, there's no one around. If something goes wrong, you're on your own. Um, There's no possibility of search and rescue. No one's going to get to your location in time. If you flip your canoe in rapids, you're pretty much done for. Um, However long you can hold your breath is all the time you've got to get back to the surface. And same with hypothermia. That's a matter of, of, 20, 25 minutes and you've got to get a fire and get warm and get changed uh, and continue on your journey. So I was trying to be as careful as possible, always erring on the side of caution uh, when it came to making those difficult decisions about do I go left, do I go right, do I paddle through or do I go try to go around on foot uh, and these kind of decisions every day. When you write about it, you're so calm in the way that you write about it, the way you tell your story. So I'm sitting here thinking like, you know, he didn't have any, you know, polar bears chasing him or anything like that. But, you know, I started thinking about when you were getting close to Niagara, like you were freaking me out because you seem to go a little further than perhaps you wanted or you should have. I'm not really sure. That one really freaked me out along with crossing the channels in front of those ships and, and like you said, the hydro dams. And then there was one rapid, I think you went down that you, you just said, well, I'm just going to go for it or something. And I'm just like, my heart was pounding for that one too. So what about Niagara though? That's the one. Did you go a little further than you should have maybe? I don't know. Well, I paddled down the Niagara River and I wanted to get as close to Niagara Falls as possible in my canoe um, to reduce the length of the portage, the the traveling on foot I would have to do to get around the rapids uh, and the falls themselves. 
and I did that partly because I was trying to avoid attracting a lot of attention to myself. And I knew if I portage around Niagara Falls, this could take like five or six hours on foot with my canoe, uh, traveling through one of the biggest tourist attractions in the world with potentially thousands of tourists, every one of them with a phone taking my picture, which I didn't <laughs> want. So I was like, it's April, it's relatively cold. I'll do this first thing in the morning at the crack of dawn at like 4 a.m. before most people are even awake, before most tourists are out in a stir. And I want to try to paddle as safe as I could um, towards the brink of the falls to reduce the amount of travel on foot I would have to do, which is slow going when you have a canoe with you and all your gear, your backpack and all the rest. So I, I camped on an island above the falls and then I broke camp while it was still dark and I paddled across the river in the dark. There's enough artificial glow from the city of Niagara Falls that you could see without too much trouble. And I could hear the roar of the falls and I could feel the river sucking me towards them. But I got close to the bank for safety and then I just sort of edged along the bank towards Niagara Falls. And there were some rocks in the water, so I didn't want to hit a rock and you know tip out of my canoe. That would be bad. Not, not necessarily fatal. I mean, I could probably swim to the shore, but still I didn't want anything like that happening. So I was edging along, along the bank for safety so that if, it, if suddenly the current picked up or something, I'd be able to jump onto the shore quickly. I didn't think it would. And I wasn't really worried about the falls themselves. I was actually more worried about the hydro because above Niagara Falls, there's a huge like um, hydro intake with turbines that sucks all that water in for hydroelectricity. And I was more worried about getting trapped in something like that than I was in the actual waterfall. Now, I knew along the shore for safety, they've built like high barbed wire fencing so no one can get into the river above the hydro intake. And I was coming down towards it. And as soon as I saw like the barbed wire in installations, I knew, okay, that's pretty much as far as, I, as it's possible to paddle. Now I have to get out. And it was still dark. It was like 4.30 in the morning or so when I landed on the shore above the fencing. And then I set up my canoe and started my portage um, along a trail to bypass Niagara Falls and bypass the Whirlpool in the Niagara Gorge. And then I put back in the water uh, below the Whirlpool. Current's still really strong. That's at Queenston, right across from Lewiston, New York. And then I paddled the rest of the way down the river from there. Do you look back at some of these trips that you've taken? And is there sort of like one memory that most stands out in your mind. So is there something on this trip that really stands out when you kind of look back at it? Well, I mean, the whole trip was full of fascination. There was lots of history I passed along the way. Um, you're traveling through what in Canada is the most historic part of the country. The oldest sites in Canada, like our version of, of Jamestown or Plymouth Rock is along this route. The St. Lawrence River is where uh, Canada really began with the French settlers over 400 years ago. So this was very interesting. And I mean, you could travel that same route by car and not see half as many historic sites as I did. When you travel by canoe, you're never really going that fast. So I would notice all sorts of things like all oh, that old windmill. And there's some very old windmills along the St. Lawrence River in Quebec, some of which date back to the 1600s. So this is like the period of the Salem witch trials, to use a New England example. And I'm seeing a lot of ruins of old farmhouses, stone farmhouses in Quebec uh, that date back to New France, old forts. There were many wars between New France and New England, wars of empire. Um, and I, I would always note these things as I paddled by them. Sometimes I'd stop and look at the ruins of an old lighthouse or an old flour mill or an old church, um, an old fort. 
so this was all part of the fascination of the journey. And it's hard to just pick one and say that was my favorite because to me it was all sort of pieces of a, of a bigger picture of one continuous story, um, this journey from Lake Erie to the Arctic, which is kind of like if someone wanted to paddle from the tip of Florida um, to Maine or something, right? It's traveling Canada from south to north is what I was doing. Yeah. So I was interested in the the whole landscape, the whole picture from south to north of Canada. And I guess the very end to me would be the most special because that place is so remote, so isolated. There's not another living soul around and there's not very many places like that where you can still say that's true in our world in the year 2023. But for me, it was um, in those Arctic mountains and wandering around in them it felt like something like out of Lord of the Rings, like you're in another world. Um, those mountains are just so majestic, so otherworldly, and that's where the falcons fly, and that's where I wanted to get to. So I hiked up into on foot into these mountains that felt like the land time for God um, to search for a falcon's nest. So if you force me, if you twisted my arm and said you have to name one thing, yeah. I would say the mountains at the end of my journey. Wow. And I, yeah, I just want to let everybody know, if you haven't read the book yet, that was one of the things, you always do this, but I love this, all the history that you put into it. And I was literally, while you were paddling, I was, I had my phone open and I was literally following your routes. And I, even though like those side canals that you were taking to get around certain areas, I literally followed you like, you know, kilometer by kilometer, probably all the way to the Arctic. So I loved all the history and it makes me want to go to that part of Canada on a vacation and just see sort of what you talked about because it just sounds amazing. So you have been an explorer nearly your entire life. So my question is, are you still learning new things about the process? Oh, all the time. I mean, I'm planning new adventures and expeditions almost every day. The other day I was researching some American waters because I had that vague idea, not anytime soon, but maybe five years from now doing an American trip. So that was interesting because there's, of course, all sorts of flora and fauna in the U.S. that I'm not familiar with that seems very exotic to me, um, trees and plants and birds and fish and other animals that I never see here in Canada. Mm-hmm. So that's all new research, um, new things that I've never experienced. But even in Canada, um, Canada is so vast. I always say you could live 10 lifetimes and never even come close to seeing it all. It'd just be a, a drop in the bucket. All of my adventures at the end of the day. There's so many tens of thousands of rivers, millions of lakes, uh, millions of acres of wild land. So there's certainly all new things that I um, am constantly studying, learning about, and preparing for. I'm planning some big expeditions for 2024, and I'm doing research all the time about how would I actually get into this area, what's the best approach, um, not only in terms of getting there, in terms of my expedition strategy, but even in the gear I'm using. Um, you would think like, oh, he must, he must have figured out the perfect clothing. But no, I mean, I'm always experimenting with, though, you know, what's a better brand of rain jacket or well, how can I keep my feet warm and dry? This is remarkably difficult, even with the best stuff on the market. There's really no wow. perfect foolproof system. You can go like full neoprene if you want, uh, but you'll end up sweating and you're, it doesn't really breathe very well. So your feet might still suffer from being wet and damp. And uh, I've gone from one end of the spectrum to the other in terms of, you know, give me the best neoprene boots and socks you can get to, I'm just going to do it the old fashioned way and let my feet get wet because at least I can air them out afterwards. If I just wear open shoes, like essentially water shoes made for hiking and it's cold, but you know, then your feet breathe when you're paddling. 
So that kind of stuff I'm always researching and experimenting with and testing out different um, techniques, try to figure out what's best. And even with canoes, I mean, you can never really know it all. So I'm always looking at new paddles and new designs in terms of canoes. Like what, what would be faster? Now I'm looking at canoes that have a sleeker hull so I can paddle faster. But of course, there's pros and cons to everything. And a canoe that's designed to be faster is also one that's going to be more vulnerable to waves and to rapids. So yeah. it's a trade-off either way. You know, Is it worth it? If you have a canoe that has a sleeker design, you can maybe paddle six or seven kilometers an hour instead of four or five, so you'll be traveling faster. But on the other hand, you might have a bigger ch- chunk of your journey that you have to be on shore now because the waves are too rough and this sleeker canoe can't handle these bigger waves. So do the math, do you save time or do not? And sometimes it's impossible to forecast and you just have to sort of make the best uh, prediction you can and go with one or the other. So all that stuff I'm constantly researching from granola bars to tents to everything, because uh, that's partly what's so fun about this. It's not like playing hockey, although I love hockey. I am a Canadian and I still play hockey. But once you've played like 100 games of hockey, you pretty much know everything there is to know about the game. It's still fun and exciting. But with wilderness travel, um, you can never know everything and that you, you're constantly refining um, your methods and trying and experimenting with different techniques. So I'm still doing that very much. Well, and that reminds me that what shocked me when I was reading the book was that you ended up changing out your canoe. You had your your canoe for a while and then you swapped it out. And that just shocked me. I just thought you it was sort of an untested, unknown thing, right? But you that's how you finished your journey. Yes. Well, I knew I would pretty much have no choice but to do that Yeah. Um, just because of all the hydro dams and how much the uh, landscape has been transformed by some of the biggest hydro dams in the world. So I knew it just doesn't really make sense to try to carry a canoe, portage it, as we say in Canada, almost a thousand kilometers. That just, at that, you have to question like, you know, that doesn't make any sense. You have to look at this from a practical point of view. So it's better to store my canoe. I'll just find some local, make friends with them and he'll keep my canoe for me and then I'll hike a thousand kilometers through the wilderness. And when I get to the other side, one way or another, this is Canada. I have to be able to find a canoe and paddle that the remaining 1300 kilometers to the Arctic. That was my idea. And luckily it more or less worked out. Well, and that's the thing you forget about, or at least I forgot kind of about the scale of the whole project, right? So, you know, you're going along and then all of a sudden, like you said, there's a thousand kilometers that you're going to have to, you can't portage over that. So yeah. Uh, But it was still, it's, it really hit me when I just thought, I can't, I can't believe he's going to just take this canoe and, or hope to find a canoe and then finish the journey. So that was really amazing. Uh, Now, I wanted to ask you, because I'm really fascinated by the Royal Canadian Geographical Society's Explorer in Residence program. And I just wonder, how does one become an Explorer in Residence? Well, I've been an Explorer in Residence the last uh, five and a half years with the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. And in the U.S., um, you do have an equivalent program, um, National Geographic, which is kind of like mm-hmm. the American version of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society, they do have explorers and residents too. At least they used to. I don't. I haven't checked them out lately, but they definitely did before. And in both cases, well, I'm not as familiar with the American program, but in Canada, it's not something you can apply for. You are appointed by them, so they basically have to come and find you and tap you on the shoulder and say, "We want to make you an explorer and residence." It's not something you really apply to do. 
And I had already done many expeditions uh, for the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. I carried their flag on expeditions. I'd written for Canadian Geographic Magazine. I'd authored several books and done all kinds of adventures. I'd finished my journey across the Arctic, and then they had decided, well, we want to appoint you an explorer in residence so that you are like essentially permanently a representative of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. So that's how that happens, and they only really appoint people who would be considered high profile in the outdoor adventure community because they're almost like a, a brand ambassador for the geographical society and uh, represent it to Canadians and I guess beyond Canada's borders as well in the form of doing podcasts with <laughs> people in Michigan. So that's how that works. And there's there's only a handful of us who do it. And they're all sort of relatively well-known authors or public speakers uh, one of my colleagues, George Karunas, is a storm chaser, and he hosts a TV show on the Canadian Weather Network about storm chasing. Oh. Uh, one of my other colleagues, uh, Jill Heinerth, she's an undersea explorer, so she does cave diving, scuba diving. And uh, she's written a number of books and uh, is is well known in the underwater exploration community. And then Ray Zahav is another explorer in residence. Um, he's made a number of high-profile documentaries. I think Matt Damon was actually a producer of one. And he does ultra marathons in extreme conditions. So he's, oh, wow. you know, he runs across the Gobi Desert or the Sahara. Um, so it's a pretty tight-knit bunch of us who are the explorers in residence. But that's basically the long and the short of it. Okay, well, I I think that's fabulous. Uh, we need people like all of you who push that envelope for the rest of us who are armchair readers and, and get to follow you along on your adventures. But now I do want to ask you, you know, a couple of years ago when I was still the library director at, at my little library here in Michigan, we hosted you for a virtual presentation. It was kind of during COVID situation and everything. And I wanted to just, I know you just are coming off soon off of a very long book tour. And I just thought, can you talk a little bit, do you still have presentations coming up or you do presentations all over the place? And, I, and let me just say too, I did see you in London and first of all, hilarious. It was absolutely so entertaining, so informative, so fascinating. You see lots of pictures that are not in the books. So I highly recommend if you have an opportunity to see Adam in person, do it. But can you talk a little bit about that aspect of your career? Yes. I mean, I thought in the old days before I was an author that you write your book and then the hard part's over. <laughs> your job is done. <laughs> now I always joke that writing the book is the easy part. The hard part is selling it. Um, <laughs> and I realized that to make, your, to make a living off your books, which is basically what I do, the majority of my income comes from my books. And then I supplement that a little bit with guided hikes, um, teaching people how to identify wild plants and mushrooms in Canada, that you have to do, you have to do book events, right? That's what authors do. And for me, that's at public libraries, museums, um, outdoor stores, uh, and increasingly in theaters, um, and places like that. So when a book gets published, mine gets published in, or mine was just published on October 3rd, you only have a few months really to promote that book. So October and November, maybe up through Christmas and uh, try to make it um, sell as well as you can, because the reality is there's thousands of other books on the market. And I used to think, you know, you'd walk into a store and in a bookstore and you'd see thousands of books on the shelf. And it's like, Oh my, how is anyone ever going to buy my book? It's just buried among thousands of others in here. Right. Mm -hmm. 
And if you look at the best-selling books list, it's increasingly dominated by celebrities. Right now, like the big best-selling books in Canada are uh, Britney Spears. She had a memoir come out. So that book is high up there. And I think she had an ad, someone told me, during the Super Bowl. <laughs> it's like, that's pretty, that's pretty hard to compete about compete yeah. against when you're a self-employed adventurer like I am. Um, and Matthew Perry, the actor who passed away, who played uh, Chandler on Friends, his book has been on the bestseller list as well. And other celebrities like that tend to tend to be what dominates the best-selling books list, right? Like Gordon Ramsay has a new cookbook, something like that, right? Martin yeah. Stewart has a new book out. And then there's my book <laughs> <laughs> or a book that gets made into a Hollywood movie in many cases. I saw that there's a diary of a wimpy kid one place ahead of me on the bestseller <laughs> list right now in Canada. So I obviously don't have that kind of star power. I'm not a celebrity. I don't have millions of dollars to spend on ads. So for me, I do it sort of organically, grassroots. I go to libraries and museums and theaters that ask me to come. And I, I talk about my book and I do a slideshow uh, talking about my adventures in the wilderness, showing people wildlife and uh, telling them about the process of doing these journeys. And that's how I uh, sell my books and promote them for at least a couple of months after they're published. And then when that that's up, I'm back out in the wilderness doing my thing. And uh, each book I've done, this is my fifth one, Where the Falcon Flies, the audience has grown a little more um, just through word of mouth, through grassroots. And people will say, you know, I saw you in Sarnia. Uh, you spoke at the local bookstore there. I really enjoyed it. My friend's a teacher. Um, would you would you be willing to go to a school? They'd love to host you. And then someone sees you there and says, you know, I, I have a retirement club or I run a book club and then I get invited there. So this book tour has had a lot of stops on it and uh, much more so than any event I've ever done previously or any book I've done previously. And uh, I have a few talks left. I'm in Ottawa tomorrow night and the Royal Canadian Geographical Society is hosting me. And then Montreal the day after that, which last time I was in Montreal, I was camping there part of my journey to the Arctic. And then I have a one hosted by a local museum where they rent a community center or a hall. And we hope to get a hundred or 200 people in there to uh, see my slideshow. So that's what I'm doing right now. My last question is, I noticed that you are coming out with a book every two years. So can we expect there will be an exploration in 24 and a book in 25 perhaps? Yes, I will have books. I'm going to continue my um, two-year intervals between books Great. as long as I'm able. So there will be a new book two years from now in 2025 and another one in 2027, knock on wood, and another one after that in 2029. And uh, these books will be a combination of my historical research as well as my expeditions, um, like my past books have been. And some of them are multi-year projects uh, that I don't do in a single year. I need more years to get them done. So my next book is actually about a lost explorer. And I've already been doing expeditions in the Arctic involving this lost explorer, visiting historic sites, old campsites, retracing his route. Uh, I've been doing it since 2017. And I'll be back in the Arctic again, retracing some of his, his last final routes um, in order to gather all the material I need to write a book about his disappearance. And that'll be my 2025 book. And same with my 2027 book. It's going to take four years, five years of, of research to get to that point of doing expeditions to gather enough material to make the book. Okay. Well, this just really, really makes me excited because this is my very favorite kind of nonfiction. It, I love Northern 
places. I love the history, the flora, the fauna, everything. So you write exactly what I want to read. So I'm so excited. 2025, we'll have a new book out in 2027. So Adam, Thank you so much. And I would love to have you back in 25 and 27 to talk about your new books then. Oh, sounds, uh, sounds like a good plan. I'll hold you to it. Great. All right. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. 